0: This week on Best in Show, we're talking to Guillermo del Toro and Mark Gustafson about Pinocchio and Paddington. We also have Moonlight's Trevante Rhodes and the director of his Indie Spirit Award nominated film, Bruiser. That's Letterboxd fan Miles Warren. And in between all of that, we have so many more Guild Awards and the César Awards. Vive la France!
1: Before we begin, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Bleecker Street, for giving us a Tony Collette and Monica Bellucci mobster comedy, Mafia Mama, directed by Katherine Hardwick.
0: While seen to her long-estranged and now-deceased grandfather's affairs in Italy, Colette, a mild-mannered suburban mom, unexpectedly inherits his mafia empire and finds herself stuck in the middle of a deadly mob war. Guided by the firm's trusted consigliere, she hilariously defies everyone's expectations, including her own, as the new head of the family business.
2: Mafia Mama will be in theaters this April, and the trailer just dropped, so get on over to YouTube and watch.
0: After listening to this podcast, of course.
2: Of course, of course. On with the show.
0: Hi, and welcome to Best in Show, a limited podcast series brought to you by The Letterboxd Show. I am Mia Vicino, the West Coast editor here at Letterboxd, and Best in Show, as you know by now, is all about award season. We have contenders, we have movie execs, we have Letterboxd Data, we have Reckons, and it's all in service of doing what we always do here at Letterboxd celebrating cinema. And here again to celebrate cinema with me are my best in show besties, Hollywood veteran and our editorial producer, Brian Formo. Charmed. (laughs) And our editor in chief, Gemma Gracewood.
1: Hello from two hours up the road from you.
0: Also on our team outside in the broadcast van with their taquitos and their aqua fresca are our resident fact finder, Jack's Facts, and the man with the tape deck himself, our editor, Slim. Thank you, as always, to these silent gents. And now, the news. Brian, it has been another huge week for the craft Awards bodies. The Screen Actors Guild, the Producers Guild, the Annie Awards for Animation, and the, the Cesar Awards were just held in Paris.
2: Let's start in Paris, shall we? Hollywood can wait just a little bit.
0: Ooh, wee. (laughs) The César Awards are the French film industry's top film prizes. You may remember the Césars from such walkouts as 2020 when Del Hainel and Celine Sciamma and others left the room crying shame after Roman Polanski was given a gong. Well, 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 how times change. This year, the best picture went to a procedural thriller about a case of femicide, The Night of the 12th, a film that has had everyone talking about the treatment of women by police. Police and the judiciary.
1: Yeah, well, everyone who's seen it, to be accurate, the Night of the Twelfth is streaming in France, but not really available anywhere else yet. But 10,000 Letterboxd members have logged it, and it had a little César's bump over the weekend on Letterboxd as more French members or people living in France caught up with it. Hugo on Letterboxd says of Night of the Twelfth that it raises questions about men and women today and about the place of masculinity. And that Dominic Mole deserves his prizes for the perfect staging. Well, Mole did get the prize for Best Director at the 48th Annual Cesars. And as Sophie also wrote in her letterbox review, what hope to see these speeches made in the mouth of a man in a film directed by a man? Now, here's the thing a woman was never going to win Best Director at the Cesars since all five finalists were male directors. But a couple of notes on that. Firstly, Night of the Twelve had several women producers, and one of them, the legendary Caroline Benjo, called for awareness around violence against women in her acceptance speech. And uh, she suggested in her speech that Dominic Moll is doing the work that men need to do. Start listening. And secondly, the Césars, like the BAFTAs and some other awards, but not the Oscars yet, one day, maybe, hopefully, have a Best First Film Award and... Is that where we might find a woman filmmaker or two, Brian?
2: Absolutely. Uh, Much like how Charlotte Wells has kind of been relegated into the best debut category for After Sun Wins and at various ceremonies, here we find Alice Diop uh, being honored with Best First Film at the Césars uh, for St. Omer. I had St. Omer in my top 10 last year. It's a very patient, well-directed film. Um, Diop is made many several feature-length documentaries, and she deserves a straight Best Director nomination or even a win. Uh, on Letterboxd rating alone, Saint-Omer rates higher than Night of the 12th even. She used her podium moment wisely, however. Uh, she paid tribute to several female directors who made films last year, which inspired her and were ignored by César voters. She mentioned Rebecca Zlotowski, who directed Other People's Children, Claire Denis, with Stars at Noon, and Mia hansen løve for One Fine Morning.
0: And still on The Césars, Virginie Efira won Best Actress for her performance as a terrorist attack survivor and Alice Winocour's Paris Memories, while Benoit Magimel won Best Actor with Albert Serra's Pacifiction, which also won Best Cinematography and has just started playing stateside. Plus, letterboxd fave Noémie Merlant won Best Supporting Actress for Louis Gorel's The Innocent. And... David Fincher was given an honorary Cesar, which means that he got a Cesar before an Oscar. They played the Pixies Where Is My Mind as Fincher walked on stage to a standing ovation.
2: Oh, I wonder if Slim could drop a little bit of that guitar hook there. That'd mm-hmm. be pretty sweet. Uh, just yeah, say a title. Be. <laughs> what's, uh, what's your favorite Fincher, y'all?
0: Well, I guess on the topic of Pixies Where Is My Mind, it was. Fight Club when I first started my Fincher journey. Then it was seven. And honestly, now it's Gone Girl. What about you, Brian? (laughs)
2: Uh, It's it's probably Gone Girl. Every passing year, every year that I get older, it's becoming Gone Girl for me over and over and over. (laughs) It is so rewatchable. It is one of the best rewatches out there.
1: I have never seen it. Oh my (laughs)
2: god.
1: Oh my god. My jaw dropped. (laughs) I can't understand any of you people who. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to be spicy and take a note from Alice Diop and say it's Lords of Dogtown, which Fincher produced and Catherine Hardwick directed. Z Boys, forever. Venice Beach forever. I'm just up the road in San Luis Obispo. I am working my way closer to you. We're going to be in real life together, the three of us in Hollywood this week in a matter of days, Uh, which brings us to Hollywood, which has had another extremely busy week. The Screen Actors Guild and the Producers Guild of America both went all chips in on everything, everywhere, all at once. Let's start with the Actors Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, is the first film to ever win three individual acting prizes at the Screen Actors Guilds, which we, like the industry, will call the SAGs for the rest of the show, which has always made me snort a little because SAG is probably the very opposite of what most cosmeticians want actors to do. (laughs) Anyway, 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 anyway. Michelle Yeo, Ki Hui Kwan and Jamie Lee Curtis all won their categories.
0: And Michelle Yeoh and Ki-Hui Kwan became the first Asian performers to win their respective categories of Best Actress and Best Supporting Actor, which made me cry. But during the Everything Everywhere All at Once cast acceptance speech for Best Cast, James Hong called out Jamie Lee as being an honorary Asian for having the name Lee, which made me laugh because (laughs) Lee is also my middle name. So he he is right on that front.
2: Jamie Lee Curtis is by far the biggest surprise, I think, out of the SAGs, um, but she's been working hard on the trail this season. And while Angela Bassett did not get gonged for Best Supporting Actress at the SAGs, she still added four trophies over last weekend. She got two each from the Hollywood Critics Association and an additional two from the NAACP Image Awards. They were both two career awards and two Best Supporting Actress Awards for Black Panther Wakanda Forever. So she 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 did win a bunch over the weekend, just not at the SAGs.
0: And speaking of the NAACP Image Awards, we should mention that Will Smith won Best Actor for Emancipation one year after the Oscars banished him for 10 years because of the slap.
2: I can't believe that that, that the, the slap was less than a year ago. But do we actually think the Academy will bar Will that long? I don't know. Back to the sags, back to the sags. We, don't, we, we ain't got time for the slap. I wanted <laughs> to mention one interesting fact from our friend Jack Spex. So the Best Ensemble Cast Award is essentially the SAG equivalent of Best Picture. And this year was the highest rated nominee list they've ever had, according to Letterboxd. It started in 1995, so it's not like going all the way back to the 40s, but still, it's the highest ever. The 2022 nominated films were Babylon, Banshees of Inishirin, Everything Everywhere All at Once, The Fablemans, and Women Talking. Combined, that had a 4.1 out of 5 rating, uh, average rating on Letterboxd. The, the second closest year was 1997. Which had 3.9 and the full Monty was kind of a spoiler win because it had no individual acting nominations, which is unusual for the Sags, but it is truly an ensemble film. Okay, okay. Back to this year. Not a surprise. Everything everywhere. Cruise to victory. It won everything. A clean sweep. Mia, you watched the whole show. Tell us your highlight.
0: I actually want to add, I just remembered that Mark Wahlberg referred to women talking as women are talking when he was announcing. (laughs) And that might be my highlight. So let me actually. (laughs) It was incredible. But then after that, he awarded the cast award to Everything Everywhere All at Once. And Michelle Yeoh handed the mic off to 94-year-old James Hong, who spoke about how his first film was with Clark Gable way back in the day. And they, they had white people playing Asian people with their eyes taped back and everything because, you know, Asians don't make money at the box office, they say. And then he was like, but look at us now, to rapturous applause. It was incredible. So that both of those moments uh, meld into my highlight.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Pro and con. I,
1: Yeah. Insane, insane. I just keep thinking about Breakfast at Tiffany's and how cursed Mm -hmm. that wonderful film is. Oh, so cursed. Sorry, everyone. A a quick note on stunts, though. The SAGs recognize this craft, and it's not a surprise, but Top Gun Maverick won the award that will surely eventually just be named for Tom Cruise for the rest of (laughs) life. I guess. Um, what else happened or did not happen to your satisfaction at the SAGs, Mia?
0: Oh, well, my poor Colin Farrell and his stunt eyebrows were passed over for Best Actor at the SAGs to Brendan Fraser for The Whale, who also won at the Hollywood Critics Association Awards this weekend. Um, and the, the Banshees of In Sharon had, an in Inglorious Statistic, it is the first film to get five SAG nominations and not win any. But... They'll always have their BAFTAs.
1: They will always have their BAFTAs. So so the mention of Hollywood Critics Association in there, I feel like all the many, many, many regional Critics Association Awards are months behind us, but no, there was this one last ceremony over the weekend. Um, Brian and Mia, you were both there. What were the vibes? Uh,
2: it was a love verse for Everything Everywhere All at Once and also RRR. Um, yes. Everything... Uh, took picture, director, actress, supporting actor, and more. RRR won action film, Best Action Films, Stunts, International, and a few others. Uh, but this group, which I should know is one of the two critic memberships I am a part of, has a few categories that I wanted to highlight outside of the Oscar rat race. Uh, much how we already highlighted that the SAG does stunts, um, the HCAs have a couple that the Oscars should consider as well. So Jenny Slate was on stage often as Marcel the Shell with Shoes On won Best Indie Film, which was a pleasant surprise. Um, And she was in Everything Everywhere All at Once, uh, which everyone keeps forgetting about, which did win Best Ensemble. She was one of the few cast members that was at the event, so she got up uh, with Kihue Khan for that. Uh, But the loveliest Jenny Slate moment was her speech for winning a category that doesn't show up enough best voice or motion capture performance let's listen because it actually made me tear up a little in the room
0: i just um want to say this performance has been my very favorite and um being in love and being a performer is all i've ever wanted to happen to me and um i hope that um tonight uh especially because like, there's not a lot of recognition for voice performance. I hope that it is a um, sturdy predictor for the rest of my life. One that says, you can do this work and live this way in these loves until you are so old that your life is complete and your heart takes a bow to the universe itself. So just know I adore this moment. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much. I love that so, so much. We will come back to some Jenny Slate chat soon. But first, uh, Brian, you wanted to give some flowers to some folks you chatted with inside the room, you big fancy uh, Critics Association member, you.
2: Yeah, there's uh, there's one man I've had the pleasure to chat with it a few times at a number of these events, uh, and that's Glass Onion writer, director, Ryan Johnson who, like Angela Bassett, won two awards. Uh, One was for Best Comedy. It was a competitive award. And one for Showing Up uh, for a Filmmaker Achievement Award. He knew was going to win, so he was there. Uh, He was given that by his Brick and Looper star, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And I wanted to mention that I love that he shouted out the editor of his clip montage. Because quality clip shows at award ceremonies is something that no one really mentions unless they're complaining about it. And I like that Ryan uh, mentioned it and actually like gave a shout out in the room because he loved it. So I'm going to mention it as well because I met the people who put these clips together when they noticed my Letterboxd backpack. So here's a shout out to Ezra Cubero and Zachary Marsh. Ezra cut Ryan's career montage and Zachary cut the great opening montage of 2022 films. They're both proud members of Letterboxd. They're on, they're under, their given names, but we'll put links uh, to their profiles in the episode notes too.
0: Speaking of Letterboxd members, I can report from the HCA red carpet that, nope, Brandon Perea is on Letterboxd and he is catching up on awards titles and old faves. I love Letterboxd,
3: are you kidding me? What? Yes, yes, I, I have my account, you know, I was just on it the other day, you know, registering the films that I just watched. What did I just watch? I just watched uh, Tar, finally, thank God. Cause like being in award season is kind of hard to like watch movies, but yeah, I just logged Tar. Um, I watched uh, Banshees of Inisherin, and um, what else? Um, uh, there's one more film that I watched recently. Um, I rewatched Twister, <laughs> and uh, so I mean I had to put it in my letterbox of like this is what I watched recently and. uh yeah, i've been I've been on a little a little
1: roll right now. yeah, that's so cool. You talked to Brandon, Mia, mm-hmm. but we've got to keep moving
0: onwards. Onwards. we go to the Producers' Guild of America, where everything everywhere all at once won best film. So what does that mean, Brian?
2: Well, I am in Las Vegas right now for a wedding. And even though I'm here, I would it's not worth betting on Best Picture because everything everywhere all at once is the runaway favorite. the The odds are extremely in its favor only one film has ever won the top prizes at both the directors and producers guild along with SAG ensemble and gone on to lose the Oscar for best, best picture. The only one that did that was Apollo 13. Every other film that has uh, achieved that has gone on to win. However, uh, there's reasons to watch, uh, best director and most of the acting awards, the screenplay awards score. There's just so many Oscars that could go many different ways. Uh, and so while Best Picture feels inevitable, this is still the murkiest season in other categories in a long time, which is exciting. A lot of people could surprise.
0: Yeah, BAFTA and SAG not lining up for a single acting award is wild,
1: right? Uh, yeah, it is totally wild. But I also just want to say I feel a little nervous talking about show I think especially because it was, uh, the, you know, the, the chat-topping film for... Our letterbox year in review, and we've been such champions for everything, everywhere, all at once since it first came out a year ago. I'm starting to feel really nervous, and I'd like to move away from predictions because I just, I just, I, don't, I just don't want a, a green book. Was it is green it, book? Is it?
0: We can't have a green book repeat.
1: <laughs> we can't have yeah. a green book repeat. I mean, yeah, I just had to say that. Jim is trying
2: to get that Vegas line more to get more money back. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I want the odds. I want the odds to reverse. I've got a thousand smackers on E-A-A-O. No, it's not true. One more Producers Guild mention, they gave Weird, the Al Yankovic story, the prize for best streaming or television movie. And fact is, I'm still mad that film didn't get a theatrical release. I saw it in a theatre. It was effing brilliant. So I'm glad it got another gong, even if it is for lame old television movie.
0: The the Costume Designers Guild are announcing their winners tonight, so look for those victors in my big old Guild Award roundup this week on Journal. But now it's time for some Annie Awards coverage. The Annie Awards are the annual trophies given by ASIFA, the International Animated Film Association. And like all Guilds, they go deep on categories with many, many winners at the 50th Annies. We will link to all of them in the Journal column, but... As promised, we're back to Jenny Slate. She also won the award for voice acting here and she won best writing with Dean Camp, Nick Paley and Elizabeth Holm and Marcel won best indie
1: feature. I love this for Jenny. I love this for Marcel. So Jenny created Marcel alongside Dean Fleischer-Camp, who was her husband at the time. They're still creative partners. The voice came to her during a holiday they were taking with friends. They were all rooming together in a cramped hostel and she started riffing on the idea of being small and crowded, and uh, and then Dean went off and kind of built this little character around this voice she created. She's so cool. Marcel is one of the best creative inventions ever, and as I I think you both will agree with me, it's been a delight watching that little shell's journey from YouTube Shorts all the way to best indie feature. I've I've
2: I've I've chatted with Jenny at a few of these events, and I'm so impressed with her appreciation for the season and her obvious humanity throughout it. I am a genuine fan for life of hers. Like she has been the biggest joy to meet throughout this whole season. Uh, another another major winner from the Annies was the short film "The Boy, the Mole, the Fox, and the Horse," which won four Annies. And I mention that because you can watch it on Apple TV, and it is up for Best Animated Short as well at the Oscars.
0: And my boy, Tom Hollander, who you may recognize from The White Lotus Season 2, plays the mole. So speaking of boys, let's get to that wooden boy. It is time to step behind the curtain for a deeper look at Guillermo del Toro's
1: Pinocchio. So Brian Formo is truly our Hollywood insider this episode with all this talk of chatting with Ryan Johnson and Jenny Slate. But Brian did Mia and I a solid this week. He allowed us to interview one of our heroes and one of the best people in Hollywood. So now anyone in their right mind, i.e. me, will know that Guillermo del Toro was plain robbed of winning Best Picture at last year's Oscars for Nightmare Alley. But could this be Guillermo's year? I said it before, I'd be happy for any one of the animation nominees to win the Oscar. And I feel especially warm towards Domi Shi and Turning Red because I love a good movie about periods and boy bands. But... If stats are facts, the fact is Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio is this year's front runner. On top of the awards Mia has already mentioned, it won three VFX Society Awards for outstanding visual effects in an animated feature, outstanding animated character for the titular boy himself, And outstanding created environment for the stomach of the sea monster, lighthouse and all. The BAFTA for animated feature is also in hand, and Pinocchio continued its animation dominance over the weekend. It won the Best Animated Movie at the PGAs and the HCAs, and seemingly every other three-letter organisation. And at the Annie's, Pinocchio took Best Feature, Best Direction, Best Original Score, Best Production Design, and Best Character Animation. Woo, woo! Breathe out.
0: (laughs) Yeah, take a breath, Gemma. So Guillermo del Toro is surely one of our favorite people on the awards circuit, not just because he seems to bring Pinocchio and Geppetto everywhere he goes, but because of his enthusiastic, unbridled love for movies and the people who make them. He teamed up with Fantastic Mr. Fox Animation Director Mark Gustafson to make a stunningly reimagined version of the Pinocchio tale involving animation studios in three different countries, including GDTs, Beloved Mexico, and my beloved Portland.
1: And with incredible creators like composer Alexandre Desplat, uh, production designer Guy Davis, and character animator Tucker Barry, we were excited and delighted to talk to Guillermo and Mark about what it's like working with each other, and with all of their stop-motion animators, and whether Kate Blanchett sneaked any Lydia Tár into her role as Spatzadura, and why GDT feels forever bound together with the Paddington Movies.
0: Since this podcast is an award season show, can we go all the way back before filmmaking? What's the first award or prize you two ever won? And what was it for?
4: <laughs> Mark
5: has a good story.
0: <laughs> Mark's bill.
5: I never won many awards as a kid, but at some, like in my, I think the first award I ever got, I bought <laughs> at, at, at a store. I was in this, um, it was in the secondhand store and there was a bowling trophy and it had my name on it. It said Mark Gustafson. And it was for high average. <laughs> and I thought, yep, how am I ever going to do better than that? So I, I I'd have that trophy. I bought it. It means a lot to me.
4: <laughs> you know, the, the first award I won was incredibly meaningful because it was a cash award. We, I had, uh, I had taken a loan on my home to finish Kronos, and I owed uh, a quarter of a million dollars at age twenty-eight, and I had sold my car to finish Cronos, so I had no car, and we were gonna be foreclosed or we were gonna be in deep trouble, my producer and I, and. This first prize was a hundred thousand dollars, and uh, and I always thought when people climb on the stage and cried, it was fake. And then we climbed on the stage, and I was just weeping, mostly because I was not going to go to jail. Oh yeah,
1: I feel like like that's amazing, and a hundred thousand dollars is good. Cash is great, but a lot, high average, Mark. That's that's special. Pretty good. You got to admit. <laughs> Okay, so uh, we hear a lot from GDT, but I I want to read a review from Harper who writes uh, of of you Guillermo. I'm just glad this man decided to be an artist and not a military leader because I fear I'd go to (laughs) war for him. Uh, Oh, so (laughs) in that in in that vein, what is the what is the coolest? Like, what's the most fun and satisfying thing about working? with each other. Guillermo, can you tell us about Mark as a workmate and vice versa?
4: Careful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the most ridiculous thing. Uh, order. <laughs> yeah, similar sense of humor. We, we, I think that we both have the advantage that we don't take ourselves seriously, but we take our job and our work and the artistry of it seriously. We are very, very serious about it, but we ourselves like to be so sort of self-effacing and ironic and weird, very weird about it. So his humor is exceedingly strange and is very similar to mine. So it's rare, it's rare to find that. And, 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 uh, in the, in the artistic side, I think that, uh, is, is a director that I can completely rely that. We are both have each other's backs, like if he says something, uh, it's not something that comes from anything but the betterment of the film. So that's incredibly beautiful, you know, you don't have that with many people
5: and I think um, you know what I love about working with talented people is that I learn every single day and that's a that's a beautiful thing. and I learn from the people who. You know, the painters, the sculptors, you know, all the artists and, and in particular from Guillermo, you know, he brings a lot to this, um, you know, he has a vast experience and it's really fun to, to have that reflected in this different medium, you know, and pushing it uh, in a different way and bringing those sensibilities from, from live action. And he also, the other thing I really like about working with Guillermo is that he's he protects us he's at the gate we're Mm -hmm. not going to get studio notes we're not going to have to do screenings you know for audiences in you know different parts of the country where Guillermo is there and he's like nope we're doing this our way and it's either going to fail or it's going to succeed and this is the way it is
0: I'm so glad you brought up being weird because we have to talk about that. Gemma and I love to be weird. And Scott writes, this is so clearly a labor of love, gorgeous and distinctive and nuanced and weird and all the better for it. So can we talk about how being weird is the best thing to be as filmmakers, please?
1: (laughs) You need to be a little bit weird to get Alexandra Desplat to write a song with lyrics like you're a poop. Yes.
4: (laughs) Art and poop, uh. And seldom uh, encounter each other <laughs> past the age of three. <laughs> I think before that they do encounter each other often. But for myself, I, I think it's weird that people think there is such a thing as weird. I think that every person I ever meet is an anomaly, and that's what makes them absolutely worth meeting.
5: And, and I don't. I think most. Quote unquote, weird people wouldn't consider themselves weird necessarily. <laughs>
4: Thank you. Um,
5: I like weird people. That's why I went into animation.
4: Yeah. Uh. Well, and, and 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 we are not disappointed. What we have in is the world on one hand and whatever you build to cope with it. And it's the world that is crazy. We're just coping with it. In, in reality, all the social structures and wars and norms. The things that we're told should be, most of them go against human nature. Most of them. And and we have to protect yeah. the human spirit, then sometimes the counterbalance has to be weird. So,
1: so, so, so true. And I feel like this has just turned into a therapy session for all the weird kids <laughs> listening who are who are now <laughs> being affirmed, deeply affirmed in their life choices. Um you know, but on on that, you know, society and 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 protecting the weirdness, Sam writes on Letterboxd that Pinocchio is definitely, definitely gonna scare somebody's kids. But it's way worth when? it. Like since when does a kids' movie deal with mortality, alcoholism, and effing Mussolini? L M A O O O O another another letterbox member Kevin calls your film Amarcordiochio yeah
4: well <laughs> <which> <laughs> that that is one of the few that is one of the few films that we did watch with the production designers i said Amarcord and Fellini uh mm. we should watch we should watch because that little town is very much R- Rimini or Rimini is is the size of the town of Pinocchio but I think, I think that, uh, and I've studied this very, very carefully through the decades, uh, fairy tales need the darkness to be complete, you know? And uh, in fact, when people talk about this movie being dark, is no darker than the original Disney Pinocchio which had one of the most terrifying transformation scenes and
1: oh wait, I mean Donkey's Donkey's and Cigars you know furnished yeah. my nightmares for years and I'm very very pleased you went in a different direction
4: Donkey's Cigars yeah. and and if I'm not mistaken beverages that look <laughs> suspiciously intoxicating even if they were not you know <laughs>
0: Well kind of kind of continuing this I I also called it uh, Porco Rocchio like Porco Rosso. No no no. So I just I mean I really love and admire how you take these very heavy subjects like war and death and you you distill them just enough so that kids aren't like so alienated and terrified but instead they learn how to cope and this is this is a film for all ages of course but could you speak a little bit about how you went about making you know like fascist World War II era Italy somewhat kid-friendly.
4: Well, we didn't try.
0: I love that. That's amazing. <laughs>
5: well, hopefully we're not indoctrinating children into fascism. That wasn't a, that wasn't our intent.
0: That's always the hope, uh, yeah.
5: <laughs> but, you know, I think fascism in this film is, is in the background. The war is just sort of a backdrop against which this happens. And we really don't show the war, hardly at all. Uh, we show a bit of it when we are in the training camp. But um, for the most part, that's, you know, that's it. And I, because you don't have to show something like everybody understands that, you know, it's, it's just another note that we're playing. And it, you know, this notion of fascism as a really uh, uh, awful version of a paternal relationship is sort of what we were getting at with that you know, this this father figure in Mussolini who wants everybody to obey and walk in lockstep. He essentially wants them to be puppets. He says, I like puppets. So he has very few lines, but he, he really <laughs> spells it out right there.
4: And, and the thing is, the, the the insidious thing, I mean, you see the war in the horizon or the distant plains, uh, but then you see it full-fledged on the exercises of the kids in the training camp. I think that the political sh- things that shape our world don't need to be geographically close. Like we are, we are all regimented by whoever governs, uh, or or countries, or legislates, or existence into into being real or not before the law. And we don't have to be close to the White House to be affected by their policies. We don't have to. See, then fascism is even more insidious because it actually permeates the thought of the people in your family, in your hometown, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, It shapes how you behave. And there are different forms of indoctrination. And many of them are sort of guarded by things that often are institutions that should be but are not respectable, you know. So that's that's the scary thing. Is like, uh, uh, or it can be uh, the, the the fact that uh, you are told by adults how to behave, but you realize with great horror as a kid that the adults are not not any wiser than you, you know. That they just repeat.
5: Yeah, and you've you, it's it's as though the world is. Is presenting you with um, with ideologies and and not ideas. Yeah, that's dangerous.
1: And there's also you know something that occurred to me on the on last night's rewatch is it, much like war an absence of women an absence of really? mothers in this Pinocchio and, and and all the Pinocchios I guess and uh, you know there's 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 very different types of masculinity at play in this film, and I wondered if you'd speak a bit to that.
4: Yeah, and um, well, you know, even Frankenstein also has that. Uh, these are uh, creatures that are created by solitary men, you know? Uh, and, I, and I think that's, uh, that's why the maternal figure for us was Death. Death becomes the mother of Pinocchio and teaches him to be human.
5: Yeah, no, I was going to say, the irony is that the two most powerful characters in our film are both female um, Mm -hmm. life and death. And as Guillermo was saying, we we looked at the difference between them and we said, well, it feels like death is more nurturing. Death cares. Death engages with Pinocchio, actually has a conversation with him, you know, and, and talks about what it's, what all of this means. Whereas life just sort of shows up and, you know the what's bright, and she's like, "Here, have you know, have some life and uh, good luck." And then she just disappears.
4: <laughs> but that is uh, that is true of the original Pinocchio, I think, and is uh, true of uh, of the of the myth of Frankenstein. The life creation is a spark, but ultimately just uh, gives a, a few pointers: be a good boy. Uh, what is it to be a good boy? And death, which is a completely original element that uh, for me was the most intriguing thing i wanted to to investigate was the dialogue between pinocchio and and death that was the one of the main reasons uh, that i thought the movie would be worth uh, doing and that's an element when we were developing it originally with greg Grimley, uh that that if that element was not there and when i i, I said okay I'm, we're going to have the same uh, basic ideas, but restart the project. That was the first thing that I wanted to vertebrate with uh, Pat McHale. Uh, You know, I I think it's essential. Uh, And it may be too Mexican for some audiences, but we believe that death gives sense to life.
1: It's also deeply Catholic. It's deeply pagan. It's, you know, it's, it's so accessible. Plus you get the death rabbits, which is a plus in
4: our opinion. That, those, those were, those were uh, there, um, when Grace was doing the, the his version, he brought the, them from the Colabi book, and then Guy Davis redesigned them in this beautiful shape where they look like they're wearing their own skin as a tuxedo. Yeah.
0: You you just brought up uh, Pat McHale, and uh, and you've spoken about being a fan of of his writing for Over the Garden Wall, which is a total masterpiece. Uh-huh. It's uh-huh. Uh, a letterboxed favorite. It's highly rewatched every single fall. It's got a whopping 4.6 out of five-star rating, like one of our highest-rated wow. um, film-slash-miniseries, I suppose. Could you tell us about uh, how you knew that his writing voice would fit Pinocchio's story?
4: Well, I, I saw over the garden wall, and I understood immediately that this is a guy that knows the anthropology of the fairy tale, which is something I know very, very well. Uh, I not only I've I've been studying it most of my adult life. I wrote uh, TV episodes uh, in Mexico that dealt with sort of this idea of the anthropology of the fairy tale and how you could use it as a Jungian engine. To tell stories about childhood that were darker. And when I saw over the garden wall, I immediately knew this guy was using the forest in the way that is analyzed by Bruno Bettelheim or Young or Maria Tatar or Jack Sipes, all the great guys that write about it. And uh, that would be what we, w- would make us connect. But the thing I did not anticipate, and it was a blessing is that we would also have differences that would uh clash in a good way and and reshape the tale you know it, i think collaboration is great when you have things in common but it's even better when you have disagreements you know i, I think they're very necessary for collaboration i disagree <laughs> <laughs>
1: I was waiting for that, and right on cue, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. On anthropology, Uh, you were the animation director for Fantastic Mr. Fox, and and you know for for many other films as well. How how did this uh, experience uh, come in handy in the creation of, for example, Christoph Waltz's character Volpe? And you know, I mean, there's you know it's a different kind of fox, Um, but you know, there's a lot of creatures through this, and. You've used a lot of different stop motion construction uh, approaches Mm -hmm. to all the different creatures. I'd love to hear you talk a bit about animating these creatures.
5: Well, every single one of them is a unique challenge. Obviously, based on their design, it's really hard to make a three D design that is going to hold up and is going to give you everything you want. Um, Yeah, and it's going to last for. The couple of years that you're going to spend animating it, but you know, with every single one, you just start with a character. Who is this? You know, what's their past? You know, how do they express themselves physically? How does that make them different from the other characters? Is this character older or younger? Or you know, so you just you look at all of those things, and then you you know you get really good character designers and. And you you make cool designs, and then you go to the team that's going to actually have to build the, these things. And then you, you, know, you collect samples of cloth, and you know, uh, just uh, you do all this work, and it takes about a year or so to to make a puppet. You know, there's a, there's all these detail. I, there's this story I tell from when I was working on Fantastic Mr. Fox, where we were trying to get Mr. Fox's, you know. It, His jacket material, the right kind of jacket material. And we kept showing stuff to Wes. It went for weeks and weeks. It actually turned into months. We kept showing him samples. Then somebody got the bright idea. They said, go to his tailor, get a sample of his suit, and we'll show that to him. (laughs) And that's when we did. And that's the one he improved. So Mr. Fox is essentially wearing the exact same, you know, outfit. (laughs) as well. <laughs> I think that only speaks to the fact that we're all you know, we all express ourselves through these films yeah. in ways that maybe we don't even realize and 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 in the best case scenario as this is something Guillermo says all the time, all the artists on your project should be making self-portraits. They should
1: mm-hmm.
5: be able to look at the work that they're doing and say that reflects me and it's also the movie that I'm making with well, this whole team. So if you can get there, um, that's a really great place to be with the artists. Yeah.
1: I was going to say, I think that might've been my favorite part of the uh, making of documentary on Netflix was the footage of the stop motion animators acting out what their characters were going to do. And I, I I've i actually worked with Ansel Elworthy on a couple of projects. Yeah. He's one of yeah, your leads. Yeah. And I've seen that in real time. And I, I've experienced in real time the way that animators over time become so at one with their characters. Yes. It's,
5: it's a beautiful thing. Well, Ant did a lot of that stuff with Volpe coming down, you know, coming up to meet Pinocchio, you know, going down the stairs and saying, Oh, the chocolate and all the world, you know. That's, that's all Ant. He did a fantastic job with that sequence.
4: And I think if you watch the different Pinocchios and the different Geppetto's, if you, had the knowledge of seeing how each animator made a variation of the Pinocchio or the Japeto is fascinating. They are, uh, uh, some of them understood the violence of Volpe better than anyone. Don't you think, Mark?
5: Yeah. Yeah, Jan in particular was almost, he was (laughs) almost too (laughs) good at the really dark stuff right before Olpe would explode. I mean, he could just make the, the hair
4: crawl the back of your neck. <laughs> he was very scary, I would say. <laughs> yeah.
0: Speaking of making a, a character your own, I have to ask about Kate Blanchett as Spazaturo. Um, I, I know you had such a great time filming Nightmare Alley that she said she would do anything for you. She'd play a pencil for you. So could you could you tell us both of yes. you about uh, directing the Lydia Tar to make monkey noises?
5: It was funny <laughs> you mentioned Lydia Tar because. We were doing some pickups for Spazzatura in a studio in London, and so we were recording Spazzatura and Kate's in there, and just man, she really great, really committed to it, It was doing a brilliant job. And then, and then she immediately had to switch over to a session where she was doing pickups for Tar. (laughs) So she (laughs) was doing that character. That's a, that's a pretty talented actress. We were,
4: we were, we were leaving the recording booth. Uh, and then Todd Shield would be coming in <gasps> to director for me. Dar- there's that, there's an old Warner brothers cartoon where the coyote is leaving and the, and the sheepdog is coming in and say, good morning, Ralph. Good morning. <laughs> and then it was like that. We were crossing each other. Good morning. Good morning, Todd. Oh,
0: I'm so glad I asked. We're
5: convinced that some of her tar Performance might have leaked into <laughs> and maybe the other way around as well. So
4: the way you cast uh, a movie is you you try to cast uh, essence. And the funny thing with Kate is, if you work with her, everybody knows she's sophisticated, precise, elegant, but she's also raunchy and fun. <laughs> and, and 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 only if you know this. You understand how good of an idea it is for her to play in It is her spirit animal. It's like, like I never had worked with Christoph Waltz, but I had been in a jury with him in Venice, in the Venice Film Festival, for the entirety of the festival, and I thought, this guy will be perfect for this.
0: I have one last question that I'm going to kick myself if I don't ask. I I have to. Um, So (laughs) Milo writes, the running gag about Ewan McGregor trying to get the chance to sing but never getting to is perfectly done, which I really related to because I'm always wanting Ewan to sing in movies and he rarely gets the chance to. And I know that he requested to sing in the end credits of Down With Love, which is one of my favorite films ever. So I have to ask, was his pinocchio and credit song another request or did you always know that would be there
4: no we we originally planned it to be there Whew, okay uh, the the killing of the, the killing of the cricket came from the book from uh, you know he does it Collodi, in the book and we had it from the beginning but what happened is the the song at the end was in and then we ran out of budget and the song in the end was out and then when we felt how powerful emotionally the ending was and how sort of devastating it was. And we said, you know what? uh, And it was very, very late in the process that uh, we said, you know what? We got to tighten our belts and pay for that cricket singing at the end because we need it. Yes. (laughs) uh, Or we will leave, we will go straight from the theater to therapy. You know, yeah. and 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 uh, <laughs> and it was, it was, and it also, it always gave sense to the fact that the cricket was narrating everything from the other side, and it, it sort of made it better.
1: Exactly. You know what it reminded me of a little bit, uh, and this leads me to our final letterbox review in question was uh, Hugh Grant's number at the end of Paddington Two, <laughs> in the
4: prison. <laughs> <laughs> the Paddington movies. And I have a very weird relationship because in Paddington 2, there is a sort of Shape of Water sequence where Sally has to swim in the water and rescue Paddington. And Paddington 1 was in production when we were in pre-production of uh, Shape of Water. And it has an inundated bathroom, Uh, both of them. I, I mean, and Sally is sort of the messenger between the two. Paddington 2 is a damn masterpiece.
1: Yeah, GDT say one more time that thing he said about
4: Paddington 2. Paddington 2 is a damn masterpiece. <laughs> Thank you, Slim. My life is complete.
2: Slim, hold up. Can you drop when Kate Blanchett told me about what she'd like to see Spazzatura the monkey do next?
3: <laughs> I, I'd love to see Spazzatura dubbing the film Tar. I think that would be really interesting. <laughs>
1: See, Brian, you just undercut our amazing moment with Guillermo and Mark by bringing Kate Blanchett to your Ryan Johnson and Jenny Slate party. Honestly, I want to go to your after party where all the famous people are.
2: Yeah, let's let's keep this high going. We're talking to Guillermo, to Kate. Let's hit the next joint, shall we?
0: Hell yeah, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Every award ceremony has that moment when you realize, despite emerging from a darkened tent on the beach with dilated pupils, that it's only 4 p.m. and there's a little bit of daylight left to walk the Venice Boardwalk until you can play a pickup basketball game for cash as Wesley's Can't Jump Ringer. Actually, only the Independent Spirit Awards have that moment. And that's our after party.
2: Yes, the best award show to attend. The pop-up tent on the beach that's full of whiskey and stars. Uh, Mia and Slim will be on the red carpet this year. That's right, Slim will emerge from the tape deck van sporting the fanciest duds he's got, a sweater.
1: <laughs> a litter hoodie, a later hoodie.
2: <laughs> I kid, I kid. Uh, but as uh, Slim and I, we've been dropping fashion links in Slack. Uh, I'll be in the press conference area and Gemma You'll be in the tent. You're going to be in that tent that's on the beach. State your excitement and expectations, please.
1: I I expect to be wearing a dress by a New Zealand designer, Gloria, Gloria Christine Crab. Thank you very much. And I hope and will be excited to just run into and hug my fellow countrywoman Melanie Linsky. Everything else is gravy.
2: It's yeah, I can't wait. It's I can't wait for you to be in there. It's so much fun. <laughs> A quick rundown of the Spirits this year, because it's a little different. They'll be broadcast on IMDb's YouTube Live, as well as Film Independent's Twitter. And if you're wondering about eligibilities, outside of the international category, the films must be made by an American production company or be a co-production with an American company. And the titles must come in under $30 million Which sounds like a lot for indie films, but there are a bunch of nominated films that are much, 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 much smaller. And this award show is their biggest stage.
0: Thought we'd get into the indie spirits spirit by talking with bruiser actor Trevante Rhodes and first time filmmaker Miles Warren. Now, Trevante, of course, was on that Oscar stage after La La Land gave way to Moonlight for Best Film, and his next award stage may well be in a tent on Santa Monica Beach when the Film Independent Spirit Awards are doled out on March 4th, just days away from this recording.
2: Yeah, Trevante is up for best supporting performance at this year's Indie Spirits for his role as Porter in Bruiser. Porter is a mysterious, charismatic drifter who befriends a 14-year-old Darius. Porter has some connection to Darius's family, which unleashes masculine insecurity in his stepfather, played by Shamir Anderson. Darius, by the way, is played by Jalen Hall, who also played Emmett Till in last year's Till. Bruiser was one of the buzziest smaller titles out of TIFF last year so much love for it on Letterboxd we were excited to talk to these two and Bruiser is available to watch right now right now right this moment on Hulu
1: I'm gonna go watch it while you two talk to Travante and Miles
0: so because this is an awards podcast we ask all of our guests what is the first award that you can remember winning
3: first award oh oh I actually know this one um when I was maybe 15, there was a, it was like a GoPro film festival contest. And I, it was like, it was like the one camera I had, I guess. Of course. <laughs> and, and uh, it was, I think it was like sponsored by like a bike company. I don't know. It was weird. So I made a whole short film on a GoPro that was judged by Elijah Wood. And <gasps> my... Yeah, it was very cool. And and he chose my film to win. And then I won a GoPro and a bike that I still have today. That's really cool. That's cool, right? And then from then on, I was like, okay, maybe, I'm, maybe I can make film. Maybe I'm- I so a- first, bro. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
6: <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that cool? Uh, you know, I ran track when I was younger, summer track. I always won in beating people in races. So nice. the first award I won, I think I was about eight years old, went to state. You always won. Always. Never lost. Until college. <laughs>
0: nice. Track star Trevante. <laughs> Trevante,
3: uh
6: keeping
2: on the awards bent. You are nominated for an Indie Spirit this year. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Thanks, guys. This it's your first uh nomination there for yourself, but you did win the Altman Award there before uh for Moonlight. For our listeners, Light. uh so you've been to the ceremony. Can for our listeners, can you set up like what makes this award show different and unique amongst the awards trail?
6: I think this was specifically because it is the Indie Spirit Awards, it's geared towards independent films or everything else. There's a lot of other things in play, I guess, with the other things, whereas this one maybe isn't so much convoluted, I would say.
0: And and festivals are super important to this process too. So one Letterbox member who attended the TIFF premiere wrote, I literally made an account just to talk about this film. I'm so excited right now. I can't even sleep. And then Maria wrote, if new and emerging directors like Miles Warren are showing up with these kinds of feature length directorial debuts, the future of filmmaking is in good hands. So so Hi. Miles, this is your feature debut. It's so exciting. Like how does this outpouring of love for your film feel?
3: It's, I mean, it's incredible. I, I can't, there's no other way to describe it. I mean, I'm, I'm obsessed with Letterboxd and so I, I've been on for a long time. And so I've I've, I've very much seen these exact ones you're talking oh. about and they've fueled they've, you know, fueled my it's it's just nice to see fans of film engage with something you've made and do it on a platform that that you've loved for a long time. And um it just it just feels really great and it's validating. And I try not to let it validate me too much as an artist because I know there's also gonna be negative stuff too and you gotta, gotta take it all with a grain of salt. But but it just, you know, it, it's it's lovely and I and I love that it's letterbox just let you kind of have such, so much access to the people who can appreciate your film like that, you know.
2: Which, which uh, hits you, hits you more in your feels, Elijah Wood validation
3: or Letterbox validation? <laughs> <laughs> honestly, honestly, the Letterbox validation is, is unmatched. It's like unparalleled because I know, I just know the community and I know, you know, how, how it works. And so just to have people that I don't know on the app kind of saying nice things is really special.
2: And uh, Travante, you were not only the first person cast in Bruiser, but you also came on as a producer. What excited you most about the script as an actor, but also pushed you to produce as well?
6: Holistically, it was when it came to me, it was right before my son was born. So it really became this love letter, this gift to my son, uh, above all things. And then again, have the an opportunity to sit with Miles and just listen to him speak, along with obviously reading his work. just being able to hop in a space with somebody like that. It was great. And then I get to say, you know, Jalen Hall got to Jalen Hall played my son. You know, that's, my kids going to love that.
0: Oh yeah. Jalen Hall is incredible. And he's having, he's having such a big year, like his leading performance here. And then he took on that, uh, immensely challenging role of Emmett Till in Till. Like he he is absolutely a rising star. And I read that you, Miles, um you rewrote the character a little bit to accompany his personality. And um I was wondering if both of you could kind of expand on that and tell us about working with this amazing fresh new talent.
3: Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's really incredible. And yeah, Darius was kind of written a little more, I don't know, maybe shy and, and uh, reserved, I think. And and Jalen is not that at all. You know, he's very confident. He's very, very, very smart. Um, and you know, he know he emotionally is intelligent too. And he knows what needs to be done in the scenes and and what the movie is. You know, and he kn- he knew the movie hinged on his shoulders. And so, once I started talking to him, and I was just kind of so charmed by his personality and how much he started to remind me almost of Porter, which was interesting. And so I I, I realized, oh, it, you can see kind of quarter in this kid and the way he's just kind of effortlessly cool and and so I started to shape Darius around that and and yeah working with him was incredible you know he's he's one of those rare kind of young talents where he can you he you ask him to do something and he can do it effortlessly and perfectly to the point sometimes where I would be like hey you can make a mistake here you can kind of scuff this up you know and 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 dig a little deeper and and less you know surface and and he would he would really appreciate that and he would he liked kind of me challenging him to to make some mistakes also because he's also he's just a kid you know um and so that kind of working relationship I think was really exciting and and
6: really fun sitting with Jalen and obviously getting me Jalen, he is someone who I feel is very similar to myself so and what mother was saying that his i guess relation uh, Porter, I felt that like he is uh i relate. I know who he is as a young man. I know who he is. I know who he will be as a man. His relationship with his mother is very similar to my relationship with my mother. So I just—it was a blessing, really cool to see from my I put as like a younger version of myself play my son. Was great.
2: Something that really resonated with me with this film is kind of the the secondhand nature of overhearing about like how your father was when he was younger. Uh, when I was Darius's age, my dad was a football coach, and he coached with uh, his old high school friends. And you would—they would tell stories about, like, on a Friday, Saturday night, you'd want to cross the street if you saw him. And uh, I've never thrown a punch in my my life, and it—but that always made me. And I know that that's the more like righteous path, but that always made me feel Is strange it? knowing this about my father, and kind of less manly in some type of way much wiser now but i'm i'm curious if there was anyone that you guys drew from in writing and performing that um maybe knowing about them when you were younger kind of put your quote unquote manhood into question
3: i think for me it was very much more so the the idea of humanizing your your parents in an interesting way like finding out that they have things or they're just and this isn't even necessarily personal to me it's just something that i i always find interesting in in media is when when a younger person finds out that their parent is ashamed of something or or has this sort of guilt or or just seeing a seeing a parent or disciplinary figure feel embarrassed is like a really powerful thing as a kid and so i i just wanted to kind of find those moments.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's very important for art to ask and depict these tough questions. And I'm curious as to how you handled portraying, you know, like brutal spectacle with care and empathy for the characters, the actors and the audience all at once. Well, also not necessarily downplaying like the seriousness of, of the violence.
3: It's interesting because the idea kind of for the movie came like very, from the very beginning, um, sort of from the idea of what world star fight videos kind of end up being, and and they, those videos like don't have very much care, you know, for the subject yeah. involved, and it, and they're you know obviously shot in these kind of wide frames, and and comedy lives in the wide shot, and so it always feels funnier than it probably actually is in the in the moment, and I think that it's like a weird, it's bizarre with these with these kind of videos because. Um, they are, they're, they're shared as comedy or like something that's just crazy. And then, but there's a there's a real kind of tragedy to them. Um, And so I kind of, what I wanted to do was, was film, film the beginning of some of these moments, these, these kind of violent moments in these wide angles and not, not let, not give too much space for the camera to move anywhere and just be very still. And then once everything starts to ramp up, um, kind of start to cut in, like very close and not ha- not live in like medium shots, but like cut into these singles and isolate them. And especially at the fair, you know, it's like we have the wide shot and then you cut into those singles. And and you, you, once you're in, you're like, oh, okay, this is kind of escalating a little more, you know. And and so I think, um, I think playing around with with being very extreme with the camera and kind of staying out and then only coming in right when, right when the the kind of conflict is ramped up to 10 you, you kind of. I don't know. You kind of all of a sudden feel like you're you're in it, and you've had you've been taking it for granted almost.
0: Did did that play into your decision to shoot it in four that four three aspect ratio? I really loved that.
3: Yeah, yeah. I think that combined with obviously it's a movie about these men that kind of continuously, you know, make themselves feel trapped, and and um, when the other exists in the other, and when they exist in each other's life, they they basically just can't exist while the other person for some reason is, is around and they, they, their, their kind of space closes in on them in an interesting way. And so I wanted to capture that. Um, I also really like the, uh, how much height, you know, I get on the frame and I can kind of dwarf them sometimes, especially with the scene where Malcolm is giving his kind of unhinged, hinged monologue about Porter's past. And you see a lot of the ceiling and a lot of the floor and, and he almost, he's like this big, you know, he's, wide, but he's kind of dwarfed by this, this house that he's built. And so those, those kind of moments I love for three, cause you get, you get to see so much what's, what's above and below and chopping these men.
0: Perfect. Yeah. I, um I also want to kind of get into your influences and talk about movies since this is for letterboxed after all. So there's, there's that, <laughs> well, there's that, there's that scene about Doctor Strange Love near the beginning that I really I really have to ask about. So Porter's hyping the film up to Darius, who who like kind of makes fun of him and it's a really charming moment. Um, could you tell us about why you selected Doctor Strange Love specifically? And if you love the movie, now is your chance to gush about it.
3: No, yeah. I mean, Doctor Strange Love is obviously a classic. Um, yeah. it's one of my favorites growing up. I mainly chose it for the character. I think I think just Porter, you know, being someone who you know, served in the in the mil- in the Air Force or military, and and has kind of dropped out of that life, and has found it to be like very exploitative and taken a part of him. And it just seems like a, the type of movie that he would watch and and you know understand and kind of get. So there was that, and then also I just loved the idea of um, of Portra explaining kind of mutually assured destruction to his his son in a movie where these you know two men are about to basically kind of beat each other to oblivion, I think I thought was really interesting. And so, I mean, that's why I chose it. I I chose it for character. I mean, obviously I love the movie. Um, And in terms of specific influences, you know, it's, it's, it started, I think with um, Charles Burnett's work, killer of sheep and, and um, to sleep with anger, you know, the idea of a, of a stranger coming into the family unit and kind of that showing the seams of that, of that unit. Um, And, you know, David Gordon Green's George Washington, kind of the, 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 the very loose poetic stuff that like Terrence Malick had, I also, you know, Badlands is something that I showed Trevante to look at Martin Sheen's character, just because of all the, the kind of posturing and the physical acting that that character does to, you know, bring, bring a, a a younger kind of string, a younger character along on a, on a journey was really interesting to me. So, so yeah, it was, there was, those are kind of the influence. And then, and then like, as the movie kind of turns into this, Thriller. It goes from this drama that's in nature into this thriller. Then it, you know, a little bit of Night of the Hunter, Cape Fear, took inspo from, and so, so yeah, it was it was kind of a whole hodgepodge of influences. Well, off of that,
2: uh, Trevante, if you could recommend any movie to someone Darius's age that left
6: a mark on you when you were younger, what would it be? You know what, man, I have to say, Hardball. I don't know what. I don't know what... No, actually, I'll tell you exactly why. It was one of the first films that my mother, my brother, and I all saw together in the theater. And the little boy who passed away in the film, his name is G-Baby, Or my little brother's name is G. It is kind of like... So I guess that's probably not the film must have set for this struck me in a way I think but that's the reason why it struck me
0: perfect could you also both of you speak about the importance of that Bruce Lee shirt I love that Bruce Lee shirt and, you know and the compliments that that come from it um cuz you could have picked any anyone so I am curious about Bruce Lee specifically
3: yeah I think it was just it's like a, a specific pop culture reference that I found interesting and that deepens the character and um I I I think it's I almost thought it was funny Cause I was like, I don't I Ben and I, Ben, my co-writer and I, we kind of thought I, you know, maybe Porter hasn't even really seen that many of his movies, but he's just the iconography of it and just the energy of it. And just that he has that shirt around and he's like learned how to to kind of fight from the Bruce Lee school and he's like been interested in that world and then just has that shirt and and the way he's, you know, talks about Bruce Lee in the very specific way it was just I think it's just an interesting character thing and and a way to like a, a visual. Thing to keep with Darius throughout the movie because he, when he puts it on, he puts it on in very specific moments in the film as kind of a connection thing, and so I thought it was just a nice visual reminder of of Porter throughout the movie.
2: And Travante, since we're we're talking about costumes, uh, and Miles already said Badlands, so I'm picturing that denim jacket. I have to ask you about that <laughs> skeleton jacket. Yeah, how did that? inform your character like wh- from that moment on of putting it on
6: yeah man he's just such a badass from that jacket <laughs> actually just that simple Porter is such a badass that jacket just I don't know I think you just showed me that and you were like this is this is Porter you know and it just was one of those things that was that made him for me
1: Well, letterbox love surely is more important than receiving an award from a jury featuring Elijah Wood. We've made it. (laughs) Love you, Elijah. (laughs) (laughs) We will see those nice gents at the beach at the Indie Spirit Awards in a few days' time. And once again, Bruiser is on Hulu right now.
0: It is starting to get insanely busy, and many are getting burnt out on awards. But, 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 not the youngsters. Since I'm an awards season freshman, I want to highlight my class of fresh faces out there on the carpets. You hear a lot of jaded comments about awards around this time in February, but it's so exciting to see Frankie Corio and all these new kids on the block having the times of their lives right now. So, the youth are our player of the season nominees this week.
1: Yeah, the youth. I believe
0: the children are our future.
2: (laughs) The kids are all right. The kids are all right. Uh, This year at the HCA's, there were so many youths in the room with fancy mocktails. At least I think they were mocktails. Who knows? Uh, The Black Phone stars Mason Thames and uh, Madeline McGraw didn't know what to say on stage when they were accepting best horror film for the scary Ethan Hawke movie. They just both held the award and were just like, oh gosh, oh geez, oh gosh, thanks Scott. It was cute. <laughs> and uh, Chloe East, who is a Letterboxd member and a massive young talent who I think should have gotten as much award buzz as Judd Hirsch got for stealing scenes in the same movie, The Fablemans. She was my favorite character. I loved her in this. She, I forget her character name, but she's the Jesus freak. That's the that's the <laughs> quickest uh, summary to get the there. The Jesus
1: freak in The Fablemans.
2: Yes. She introduced Gabriel LaBelle, who was getting a Fresh Face Award. Uh, She introduced him like a pro. It's so fun seeing the younger castmates revel in the moment. I did ask Gabriel about that David Lynch scene. And he said he was trying to maintain the nerves of meeting someone like him since he was playing John Ford. But David Lynch surprised him by hugging him on the first take to lighten the mood. And it kind of just threw everything <gasps> off his cute. <laughs> All this, uh, I, I keep saying the word cute over and over and over. Mia, take it away. We got to meet Sammy Fableman.
0: It's true. It's true. We did get to meet Sammy Fableman. Brian pulled me over into a conversation with him, Gabriel LaBelle, and told him I lost my vape pen when we saw the Fablemans. Thank you for that, Brian. <laughs>
1: That seems like a fun story to tell the youths anyway. I I keep (laughs) keep thinking about um, when when we talk about the the fresh faces on the scene, I keep thinking about uh, one of those gorgeous photos that came out of the BAFTAs, which was all the young people, Catherine Clinch from The Quiet Girl and Frankie Corio and and just so many of them sitting together with their ice creams. So adorable. And speaking of which, um, Ella Kemp, our London editor, got Frankie Corio for Faves at BAFTA which was adorable you can see it on our socials she mentioned uh, Madeline's movie The Black Phone as one of them and Don't Worry Darling as another it's really lovely that we get these kids favourite movies because these kids are in and are going to be in so many of our members favourite movies in the future and plus also just eating ice creams at awards ceremonies is so much cooler than I don't know pocketing bottles of bourbon
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yes, it's, it's much more it's
2: wholesome. Such a devious laugh there, my
1: God.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I also, I also want to add that these these kids are cinephiles. Like when I was asking Violet and Madeline McGraw about their four faves, Madeline was citing. She was saying Twelve Angry Men. She was saying like the original, and then there were none, and Murder on the Orient Expresses, and then um, both sisters said Knives Out, which was very sweet. Oh, so, yes, the children are our future, as I sang before.
1: They're all right.
0: The kids are all right, starring Julianne Moore and Annette (laughs) Benning.
1: And, <laughs> and Mark Ruffalo? Sorry.
0: Yes, and Mark Ruffalo and Mia Wasikowska, And <laughs> let's just list the entire cast
1: right here.
2: <laughs> I forgot that was the movie. I was just saying the Who album. <laughs> oh, my God. That's, a, that's how old I am.
1: <laughs> well, I can't wait to be a fresh face on the scene at the Indie Spirit Awards later this week. Brian, thank you so much for using your insider credentials and, and getting us in there. I... I I simply and purely cannot wait to see our Slim in a suit.
0: In a suit. That's high hopes. That is, those are very high (laughs) hopes that we'll see him in a suit. (laughs) He was asking me if he should tuck in his shirt. So like,
1: we. Slim, don't edit this bit out. I know you're in charge, but leave it in. (laughs)
0: for listening to Best in Show, a limited award season series brought to you by The Letterboxd Show. We would love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and we'd also love to see your reviews of the films you're cramming in before the Oscars. Be sure to
1: include the tag Best in Show. You can follow all of us and our HQ page on Letterboxd using the links in our episode notes. Thanks to our crew, Jack for the Facts, slim for making us sound amazing and tucking in his shirt sophie shin for the episode transcript and Letterboxd member trent walton for the music and to you for listening
2: whether we like it or not we are all connected sharing space and time when we finally choose to embrace that connection to show compassion towards one another we will rise together i truly believe that cinema has the power to help us achieve that Okay, this is an admission that was Alfonso Cuaron accepting best film at the 2019's BAFTAs for Roma. And this is my correction from last week's episode that there have now been 11 films not in the English language to win best film, not 10. Roma is the only non-European one.
1: And Roma is also the film that makes Slim cry the most. So he's, uh, he's weeping in the Tape Deck van weeping right at this moment. Weeping in his untucked
0: shirt.
2: <laughs> <laughs> he has to untuck his shirt to wipe away his tears. Best in Show <laughs> is a Tape tech production.
0: chef podcast